All right, so <laughs> this is Doc Scott for Revival Talk. I'm going to try something different that might work. It's an experiment. But since we've been talking about, um, since we've been talking about um, a lot of the transformation that's been going on as a result of revival and just the kind of amplified grace that, um, that we engage with that enables things to move in ways that they have never moved before. I wanted to take a moment just to explain in my simple way a little bit of what God's going after and what's kind of there based on how we're made, okay? So this nice little kindergarten tree, which you'll probably see everything backwards. I hadn't thought about that. But we'll do it anyway because you'll hear me talk about it. Okay. If I were to look at the tree, everybody see that? If we were to put on this tree um, all the things that we list and deal with, right, that are symptoms, we could put depression, that's working good, all right, um, let me just do, I won't be able to do this, I'll have to put it up, what I'll do is I'm going to post a picture later, I'm just going to refer to this. I will give you the whole tree outlined. But essentially, if you looked at the top of the tree, you would see symptoms. And all the symptoms that we see are the branches are essentially um, the things that we say that we deal with, right? So it could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be sexual addiction. You know, I'll let you guys fill in the blank. I'll post this with it all filled in later. But um, essentially, eating disorders, trans everything, fluid sexuality, whatever you want to put up here, okay? And essentially, if you look at what's giving life to this, I would call the whole middle of this shame, okay? Shame says I'm defective, there's something wrong with me, and like I said, I'll post the real deal later. Essentially, the difference between shame and guilt, guilt says I did something wrong, shame says something's wrong with me, I'm defective which is the message that we end up believing about ourselves when we've had, we've had experiences of abuse, deprivation, um, abandonment, I mean, you name it, right? If you look at the roots, all right, shame says I'm defective, I'm, I'm back on the trunk. Guilt says I did something wrong. Here's the difference. Guilt as a target moves towards... Um, has a target for reconciliation. So when I confess it, I'm good. Shame, on the other hand, is the kind of toxic thing that permeates, if you will, every branch in the tree. My addictions agree with shame. They agree with, and shame drives the addiction. And that's why we stay in these cycles, right? Because my shame sense, and this is where God is coming, he wants to heal this, is giving fuel to everything on the tree. All right, if we looked at the roots, down here in the soil, let's think of that as the soil of our heart. What we have in the soil of our heart are things like abandonment, rejection, early things that have happened in life to us. Um, when I look around my room, I can honestly say that um, a lot of these students have experienced more in their few short years than many of us have experienced in a lifetime. And so when you look at the stuff, the boulders, the things on the soil, you're going to see things like abandonment, like I said, rejection, um, gender-specific um, 
gender-specific deficits. The reason I say gender-specific is because when you get up here in the realm of sexual struggles, they're always symbolic, okay? Sexuality and the things people deal with is always symbolic. It points to the place of deficit. And a lot of times when I'm explaining this to my Bible Lit class, you know, somebody gave the example one day. They said, well, if a gay guy and a straight guy are walking across the street and they get hit by a bus, do they both go to heaven? And I, I, knew, th I knew what they wanted and I knew what I needed to say. So I said, okay, assuming they both have a relationship with Jesus, yes. That's the short answer. And then I have to go on and say, do I believe that people are actually born that way? Do I think transsexuality and gender dysphoria and all of the things that impact the various sexual expressions are part of how we're made? No, I don't. And so what I'll clarify with, that, with the students is, but if I say that, if I say that, because a lot of times that's the place where the wall comes up, okay? Well, wait a minute, because we feel this way, because we feel this, it's like, guys, if you have bodies, your bodies are going to respond to certain things. They're going to agree with your shame and agree with the label that you give yourself. Okay, that's how that works. And so, because we're presence-oriented creatures, so sexuality is like a very powerful presence. So why God said in Solomon, Song of Songs, do not awaken love before it's time, right? Because there's a lot of consequence to that. But essentially, what I would say next is, but I have to qualify by saying this, we have not loved well. And one of the biggest problems in Christendom is that we have been the gatekeepers for those to enter in. And we've shut the gates hard because we've weighed different sins and we've given some greater shame than others. And in that came our judgment. And so most people, if we're opening a door to a prodigal, like I was praying about earlier, the composition of our church is going to change. If we're a holy habitation, that means that we are going to have people walk in our door from the street. And the key is going to be, what do we do with them? A lot of times I'll ask this question just to kind of give these guys a sense of their own culture and their church. I'll say, okay, if a prostitute came off the street from her evening job, walked into your church, sat down in the pew, what, how would you guys respond? Inevitably, here's how most of them end up responding. We'd want to get her a dress. I'm like, really? Um, why does she need a dress? Well, because it'll make her feel better. I'm thinking, no, that just makes you feel better right? In other words, we want to clean her up and make her look presentable while the inside of the cup is still filthy and broken. But as long as we can dress it up on the outside and we can manage it that way, which is what we do with every kind of addiction, we try to manage it, right? Well, my thing with managing is, how's that working for you? Because what Jesus is after is not management. And the holiness that he's bringing us into as he purges us, because one of the things that's happening in revival, I'm going to draw, I'm, I'm going to post this later. So just this big blue arrow is going straight for the soil. And this is called water. And what water does 
is think about this hard, rocky soil of our heart with all the things that we've done, the sins we've committed, those that have committed, been committed against us, and our responses to those things, right? It's usually the response to what happens that determines who we become, not what happens itself. We respond to what happens by either shutting our heart down in some capacity, walling it off. We, we respond in self-protection. And we make a decision. If this was death down here, the thing that was death, this abandonment, dad walked out when I was five, whatever you want to put there, we make a vow essentially that says, I will never experience death in that way again, ever. And so we build our lives and our defenses get built around those events and our desire to keep from feeling pain. Our self-protective mechanisms are all about pain and discomfort. And I don't want to experience it, so I build up the walls and I have different mechanisms that begin to emerge in my life. They become symptoms like my OCD, my depression, all of that, right? My cutting, whatever I'm doing. They become, essentially, they become the thing that we're, try, we're trying to eradicate this. But when the Holy Spirit comes and that water is forced into that soil, everything that's in it comes up. Okay, and so that's part of what I, when I say amplified grace, that's what God's doing. We see him doing that in the pools at, the, at, the, at um, Dawsonville, <laughs> sorry, Georgia at that revival. We see it here at Remnant. I'm sure people are seeing it different places that essentially in seasons of forced change, the Holy Spirit is literally pushing this water into the soil of my heart with force. And he's doing it as an act of mercy and love. And what that means is that there are things, because most of us, I've been living in this place too. Like, why am I redealing with this thing? Why am I redealing with, I thought this was done. You know, and then we go through a prayer session, like Jamie was talking about last night, and we realize that something demonic has kind of wrapped itself around something that happened back here. And so, essentially, we're being purged, and, and it's the mercy of Jesus to reveal our hearts. It's his mercy of Jesus to cleanse us, because what happens is, in the cauldron of everyday life, we really do find out what we're made of, okay? So when, and we were talking last night about this whole thing of convergence and how essentially the ages of all the church, all the church ages are converging. And there is a synergy as the streams of Christianity are actually merging into the same river. They're all, they all have identities that are unique, but they're kind of merging into the same river. And so you have this synergy and convergence happening simultaneously as God is shifting and moving things all around the planet to essentially get us, number one, into our seat of authority, the place that we function. Because one of the things we hear a lot is, and I've said it myself, I've been waiting my whole life to, feel, to do what I feel like I was created for, but I haven't gotten there quite yet. You know, it's kind of like Joseph. Joseph was in the prison had a dream, had to go through all the abuse, had to get thrown into a well, had to go to prison. 
because all of that was part of his preparation. And what's beautiful about the story is we're, you know, it's not that we are exempt. Most of us have had the most intense battle on the journey to getting us into the place where we do the thing that God has created us to do. So in other words, the journey that we've been on, I asked the question last night in our revival talk, how many people here have been decimated by the perfect storm from the devil, <laughs> right? And the hands went up. And I said, okay, let me say it again this way. How many people feel like they were, they like the enemy tried to literally take them out and brought devastation and every kind of thing to their lives to take them out, to derail them? And then all the hands went up. And I said it that way. There is a holy purpose and agenda to what God is doing. And I said this, I'm repeating, because I know we have like a different audience here, but essentially, you getting seated into the seat of your authority, into the place where you have been created to function, is got a couple dynamics working behind it. One is this convergence. And in convergence, I like to use this illustration because in convergence, all of the disjointed pieces of my life that don't look like preparation, that don't look like me living out the call or the thing that's on me, you know, I did this, or, and also even the darkest seasons of my life, they're all there together in this tapestry of my life. In convergence, Jesus takes a thread that he weaves all the way through every one of those jigsaw pieces that's in the tapestry and he connects the dots. And what he does in that, as we look back, we see his hand that literally he's been preparing me my whole life for such a time as this. We realize that everything has had value. The darkest seasons, the lightest seasons, the worst seasons, and the best seasons that all of those things, like Joseph, were part of his preparation. Because here's what happens. On the front end of your journey, and in that middle part, that's the enemy's greatest opportunity to derail you. But here's what Jesus knows. And this is why I think, you know, because one of the things that when we went through our season, okay, one of the things, like we were decimated, we had a 10-year season where, you know, we were leveled. And I've said this before, I got to the place as a pastor and educator, everything in that season, where I didn't, when I came here to Brunswick, what, 13 years ago, I did not believe that God loved me personally. I was a person in ministry, been a fiery Christian my whole life, not my whole life, about 18 forward. And... When I got here, I was in this place because of what happened and because of the response of my heart to what happened, where I believed that God was the God of Bette Midler, meaning he was watching at a distance, but he didn't care about me. And I remember one of my students, Abs McNorton, a lot of people know him, missionary, wonderful guy. When I told him that I did know, I did not believe that Jesus cared about me personally. He broke down. He could not imagine what would happen to somebody that would actually believe that Jesus doesn't really have any, he's not looking out for me personally. Because what I did 
was I took everything that I thought was the desire of my heart and I made a box and I wanted God to operate in that box. And when those boxes blew up or I had an expectation of something he would do, when I didn't see him do what I thought he was doing, because we don't always see what God's doing behind the scenes, I built walls, self-protective walls around my heart. And, you know, our heart is deceitful. We can't really know it. And some of those walls we erect in our heart, we don't even know that we're doing it. They're just kind of like the, the byproduct of just doing the grind of life with all the stuff that goes with that. So literally, I, had, I was walled up. I walked into a worship service after many months because I didn't want anything to do with the church and or believers. And in the context of worship, my heart melted and I saw where Jesus was always with me, had never left me, and had been with me from the beginning. Blindness by virtue of being blindness means I'm blind. If I'm blind to the goodness of God, which has been the biggest enemy of the biggest tool of the enemy in Christendom is to convince the church that God is not good, that God puts disease on people, that God takes you through horrible places to teach you a lesson. Look, kindness teaches me all the lesson I need. Kindness is what leads me to repentance. I don't go through hell to teach me a lesson. Jesus is always redeeming everything that I do. So here's the flip. The victim says, why are you doing this to me? Right? Because we look at, because of the stuff that's in our soil, if you've got a little bit of abandonment, some rejection, some deprivation going on there, all of the things in my heart get exposed when we're in the cauldron of life. So when it gets really hot and the water's really boiling and we're in that, that's when everything gets exposed. You will find out what you believe about God and other people when you're in the, in the most challenging, profoundly challenging seasons of your life. It's the mercy of Jesus to reveal my heart. And the thing that is awesome about this for us is, and this is why I think God allows, my big offense was why did you allow it, right? And then that's a victim posture. A non-victim posture, a one who works together and co-labors with Jesus posture is, and this is what is simply this, when the war comes, we say, how do you want me to respond to this? The person who's responding from a place as a one who collaborates with heaven says, how do you want me to respond and sees every chance of adversity as an opportunity for the supernatural and for the God who is the God of the impossible to reveal himself. That my worst place becomes the place of my greatest victory and sets a whole new trajectory for my life. That's what he's after. Joseph, that's why Joseph, God could have pulled him out and prevented the whole thing, but Joseph had to become an Egyptian. Joseph had to be where he was when he was. Jesus did not exempt him from what he went through. He said, I'll use it and I'll make you who you are. Because in every place 
that we have suffered and, and experienced great loss, trauma, and tragedy. God has used all of those things, working all things together for good, for those who love him, to create in us a man and a woman who believes that he's good. That sounds like a contradiction. In the fires of adversity, Jesus creates and forms himself in us and convinces us that we are good, that night we're good, he's good, and that by faith we can believe what he says about us and to us. Does that make sense? So Jesus uses that. So here's the thing. The storm that you've been through, right? The, 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 whole, um, the whole place that you've been through on your journey, right? Was sovereign because there was more to it than just your journey. You and I have a peace in the holy landscape of what God is doing and fulfilling on the planet, and we are playing into something that is eternal. So we come in, 11th hour workers, and we get to reap the benefits of the convergence of the ages, which means every era of the church, everything that got unleashed, everything that got sown, is now all converging into this holy, holy chaos and tsunami of revival okay so my journey is as much a part of where I'm going as anything else it's the journey that prepared us when we come into the place where we recognize God's goodness and he heals this garbage in my heart we come into a place of seeing things rightly for the first time we see things for what they are that the unseen real is more real than the real that I'm seeing we see that God is always good. God is always in a good mood. He's never in a bad mood. That he, that he has actually been into this. He chose me before I was born. And he had a holy purpose and a holy destiny and a mandate on my head that would fulfill a, something that only I and you could do. The thing that you contribute is something that brings part of the piece of the puzzle for the end time revival for the thing that God is doing on the planet. So the reason he's into it and the reason he moves heaven and earth to get us into our seat of authority so we can have this place of convergence in our life where we finally feel like we're seated and we're doing the thing that we were created to do is because there is a mandate from heaven on who we are and the role that we play. That we are entering into the purpose and the plan of God on the face of the earth. And that's why he does all of that to get us into this place. Because once seated, once seated, your big warfare, not that we won't experience it, but what happens, and this is what I think God said when he saw Joseph and when he saw you and he saw me. He didn't intervene and take him out of the prison. He didn't intervene with the contempt of his brothers. It's almost like with Job or Peter, but it's like when you, know, you get permission to sift somebody like wheat. Okay, my big issue was God allowed it. But God allowed it because he knew the beginning from the end and he knew what the outcome was going to be. And he knew 
I can see this conversation. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. But that man and that woman, those two people are going to emerge out of that fire with more fire in them than they've ever had. And they're going to walk in unparalleled anointing because essentially I've prepared them for this and I knew who they were before they literally got into the journey to begin with. I knew the end from the beginning and I knew who they were and I knew what they would be doing and I knew that I would take everything that you, little Mr. Devil, small d, threw at them and I will use it. I will use it in their life to form steel in their resolve and gold in their hearts and I will use it to make them a weapon in my hand as a holy champion, as a holy dread champion, as a manifest son and daughter of God. He knew that. The part that he does with us is we get caught, <laughs> we catch up in the middle. <laughs> when convergence and our seating as he moves us to the place, because when we're in that seat, when he's married truth with encounter in my heart, what comes out of me at that point because of what we have done in the fire together, my words don't drop. What comes out of my mouth doesn't fall to the ground. Does that make sense? When I decree a thing, it happens. It doesn't mean I'm exempt from war. What it means is I am seated in a place where I have the whole backing of heaven behind me. And so it changes my landscape completely. Your journey was to get you, and the hell that you walked through was to get you seated for such a time as this. That's what the journey's been about. And Jesus is connecting the dots and threading the thread through the tapestry of every part of your life. He's connecting the dots, and he's showing you that he was always there that he always had a holy purpose. He, oh, there was always a holy mandate that was on your life and that he was more committed to it than we were. He was gonna do it. That's what convergence does. It seats us for such a time as this so that we can be the habitation of the Lord and that we don't have to even get it all right from the seat. We just have to show up. Just show up. Because now, when I show up, I have heaven and the king of heaven backing me up. Thank you, guys. Blessings. I'll see you all tomorrow.